Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly reed subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at JenetIngle.com. Do you have the empty read case blues? Well, luckily for you, Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that read case. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Okay, so we recently had a giveaway for our listeners, Jackie. Yes. And we had a mystery prize. And our mystery prize, we wanted to run it by the winners before (laughs) we committed to the mystery prize, just in case they weren't down. Pass. I'll pass. (laughs) (laughs) So the special mystery prize was that the winner would get to join us for a dish. So I'm so pleased to welcome Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Hello. So we thought, because Kathleen, you just finished your freshman year of college, yes? Yes. And you are uh, a California native, but you decided to go... A bassoonist. A bassoonist, yes. Uh-huh. yes. And you decided to go out of state for college, which I think is something that probably a lot of people at the end of high school might be a little afraid to do. Can you talk to us a little bit about your decision and how you weighed your college options? Yeah, so um, first off, I am from Los Angeles, so I knew, like, I absolutely loved Los Angeles. I love California, but I also knew that there's a lot of options on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. So I talked to my teacher, John Campbell, and was just like, where are some places that, where do you think would be good places for me? And he gave me a list, and I checked the website of all those colleges many times <laughs> <laughs> and just searched for what sort of program they had, what people liked about the schools, what people didn't like. And um, I'm going to uh, University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, CCM. So it's in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And let me say, at first, I didn't even know where Ohio was on a map. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 so... I talked to my teacher more and he said, I've heard a lot about William Winstead. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, cool. So did a lot more internet searching and found that everyone loves him to death and he's an incredible teacher. So I emailed him and said, 
Hi, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm really interested in going to CCM. I wanted to know what's like your opinions on like traveling and such like that. So he said, you can do a regional audition. So I went down to Colburn and I did a audition there. And um, I think the one of the things that I was thinking about for CCM is I knew it was part of University of Cincinnati, mm-hmm. which is a larger university. So I thought I'd be able to meet people who weren't just musicians. Why would you ever want to meet people who aren't musicians? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I just thought it'd be nice. Like, I thought it could make it more, like, well-rounded. <laughs> so, wait. Kathleen, are you telling me that you didn't go to Ohio before you moved there to live there? Is that what you were telling us? So I didn't go there before doing my audition. Okay. Um, I just did the regional audition, and then I waited to see if I got accepted before I went to visit. Oh, okay. And then, like, we organized with a, for a lesson with him, and I spent, I think, three or four days in Ohio just getting, seeing what I liked and didn't like about the area and the school itself. So, Galit, I don't know about you. Did you even consider going out of state at all when you were in uh, high school? Yeah, I did. I did. I auditioned a bunch of places. Um, I wouldn't say it was as far away as from California to Ohio, but I grew up in Connecticut. So I definitely, I mean, I ended up going to school in Connecticut, but I definitely auditioned like elsewhere in the, in the region. Jackie, did you? Uh, no, I, <laughs> um, I'm a first generation college student. It was a big deal for me to even go away. That was a really different concept for my family. Um, no one had ever really moved away from home. You know, um, some of my cousins went to community college, but it was very local, just culturally and um, in terms of what my family did. So to even go the two hours away to the local state school, I remember my parents dropped me off and I was like bawling my head off and (laughs) like crazy intimidated. I remember that first night in the dorm, I definitely cried um, because I felt so lonely. Oh my God, same, same. (laughs) (laughs) you didn't cry your first night in the dorm, did you? I I didn't because I um yes. I actually went to Tanglewood over one of my summers. Oh, so you're so, a pro. Yeah, so I was able to go go away for a little while. I had a little okay. bit of experience with going away, and also when we when I was searching for a roommate, I tried to find one who was also out of state. Oh, so we would have that sort of connection before <laughs> moving in. So, yeah, what is that like? Because, Galit, you thought about going out of state, but ultimately you did stay in Connecticut. I stayed well, in Washington. Well, here's what happened. I stayed in Connecticut, and then after my freshman year, I was 30 minutes from my parents. And then after my freshman year, they were like, bye, we're moving to North Carolina. <laughs> so I basically became out of state without going anywhere. <laughs> Your parents left you. <laughs> they did. They were like, Peace, good luck, have fun. <laughs> So Kathleen, what is that like when, like, obviously you were very ambitious and you'd had a little taste of being away from home, but what is that experience like being so far away from home? Uh, Did it get easier after a while or was it just like you hit the ground running, no problem? Or what was your experience like? Well, I, I did realize that because a lot of people love CCM, there were a lot of people from out of state, 
not in the actual university because um, UC is a state school, but um, in CCM there were a lot of people from out of state. So it was sort of easy to find other people who were also out of state. And I think a big thing for me is I made a set time in my week every week to call my parents. <laughs> oh my God, that's such a good idea. Yeah. So we we all knew exactly when we were going to call and my mom went to work at a specific time. So I would call on her drive to work. That's such a good idea. And it's so you can depend on it every week. You know, it's coming. So you're not going like weeks and weeks without like putting your feet on the ground. Exactly. Yeah. I was talking to my mom all the time. The idea of like once a week would have made me have separation anxiety at that point. But (laughs) (laughs) I was like calling her every day. I'm an introvert away from home. What's happening? Save me. (laughs) So Kathy, what was was your favorite thing about college? Because it's really different from high school, especially being a music major. So what was your favorite thing? I think a big thing was having, this is going to sound sort of, strange but having music every day was a big thing for me yes (laughs) yeah I I mean I come from a school that had marching band but it didn't have a full not a full music program but it had a string program my senior year Mm -hmm. um so I had to like go a couple hours away to go to Colburn for my wind ensemble experience and then I had to go another couple hours for my orchestra experiences and those were only once a week Mm -hmm. and then just like knowing that everyone in the school was an amazing player, Mm -hmm. just the music was incredible and everyone cared so much about what they were playing that it, it was just, it made me want to play even more. So it was just a cycle of wanting and wanting to play more and more and more. Oh, that's how, you know, you made the right decision. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's a good thing, you know, for those people who are listening and kind of weighing, what should I do that it it does pay off to really follow the best opportunity and and follow your heart in terms of what you think is a great fit. And sometimes the best fit is not always the most comfortable, safe thing to do. Yeah. And that was a big thing when I was choosing what school to go to, because I, I applied to two in-state schools. And um, no, maybe one in-state school. But I was accepted into both, and I really wasn't sure where I wanted to go, if I wanted to stay within a couple hours or within a couple hours on a plane. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. Wow. You're very, very courageous. Yeah, I'm thinking how, like, oh, my gosh, this girl's so brave, and I sound like the biggest weenie compared. (laughs) (laughs) My heart goes out to 18-year-old Jackie. Oh, 18-year-old, overwhelmed Jackie. She she got there eventually. She got there. (laughs) She figured it out. (laughs) So, Kathleen, is there anything else you want to tell um, the listeners who are maybe thinking about college or becoming a music major or anything any words of wisdom you would like to leave for them definitely um visit the school at some point in your decision that was Mm -hmm. big for me I did visit a couple schools and I didn't feel completely comfortable with the campus or the surrounding area of the campus also taking lessons with the teacher I mean that's when I really fell in love with Mr. Winstead Mm -hmm. uh definitely reading like uh, like college blogs and things like that. Oh, oh that is Tell very smart. 
Is it like students blogging or is it the university blogging? It would be um, sometimes parents and sometimes students. Oh. So it takes away a lot of the mystique about the process and whatnot because you could kind of read about it vicariously. Yeah. And it also like you can figure out by the write-ups if the person actually likes the school and you can figure out if that person likes the school but what they're describing is not what would fit you. Mm. That would also be important. That would have been a very good tool for 18-year-old overwhelmed Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) Also, 19-year-old overwhelmed Galit when her parents left. (laughs) Well, Kathleen, it sounds like you are just taking on life, and we are just so happy for you. Thanks for joining us for our dish. Thank you so much. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reads. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double read players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double read tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable read-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. We are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Stefan Levesque, Principal Bassoon of the Montreal Symphony. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I would love to start by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe tell us about your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today. I went to a regular elementary school for kindergarten, and in in the first grade they had um, a sort of a music test that was to find kids that had, you know, special, I guess, uh, hearing abilities, not necessarily musical. And so the kids who got chosen and whose parents approved um, would go to a, a public school that had a, a, a really great, you know, quite intensive music program. So basically I did, um, out of 25 hours a week, we did literally half the time we were doing something musical. And um, so I 
and I almost didn't get to go because I grew up across the street from elementary school. And then my dad, you know, very pragmatic, was like, why would we put him on the yellow bus if he can just cross the street? <laughs> and my mom knew some people uh, whose kids went there, and she said, no, let's give this a try. So there I did uh, recorder, violin, and piano, and my biggest regret is to not have kept the piano up. I can't play piano. I, I just, I did two years, and I'm still at, you know, grade six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not in a good way. Um, <laughs> From from that point, um, the kids that want to continue going into music, we go to a, a middle school, a public school that has a, a really great music um, concentration program, and so they had, uh, you know, they demoed the instruments just like they would. Um, so we all knew trumpet, saxophone, flute, clarinet, and then they would get students from the conservatory, the Montreal Conservatory, um, would come in and demonstrate the more exotic instruments like oboe and French horn, and then this man, who must have been 19 at the time, but to me he was a, a grown man with a mustache, and he came in and <laughs> presented the bassoon, and I just fell in love. The sound, the look of the instrument. Um, so I wanted to play bassoon, and my band director said, well, you can't really get your hands around it, because I'm not very tall, and I wasn't very tall back then. So he said, why don't you play clarinet? And then, you know, I get familiar with wind playing and, and reed instrument, and then we'll talk about it later. Of course, he forgot all about it, so come, you know, May in grade seven, I just said, so can, can I have a bassoon now? And uh, I had one lesson. I was given a couple of reeds, uh, one of the band method books with fingerings, and I spent the whole summer trying to figure it out. And then um, I had a great time because, as is often the case, there are very few bassoonists in high school. Um, so I got to play in ensembles right away. I got to play in the symphony right away. Uh, and then um, I think when I was in grade nine, the the man who presented the bassoon, who was now my teacher from the conservatory, the student, really, said, why don't you uh, apply for the pre-college division at the conservatory? Okay. Um, and I talked to my parents about it. They weren't too hot about it. They weren't against it, but I was playing hockey at the time, and they thought that was maybe a better uh, extracurricular activity. And uh, so, but they happened to go on a on a trip, and we were staying with my grandparents. Um, and so I got my grandpa to sign the form so I could oh. at the conservatory. Sneaky. <laughs> and, and then you know, like I don't know, a month later, no, I, I didn't tell them I was doing the audition. And a month later, this letter comes into uh, comes to the house, and my mom goes like wait a second, when did you do this? So, um, And then I think it was around, so I started the pre-college division in grade 10, and uh, in Quebec, uh, in the province of Quebec, high school goes to grade 11. So I did two years of pre-college, and then I kind of thought, I don't know that I want to do anything else in life, you know, other than play music, preferably in an ensemble. So I, from pre-college, then I did my undergrad at the Montreal Conservatory. Um, and then that's, I think it was my junior year, what we call junior year. Uh, in the summer, I went to, uh, to Banff, to the Banff Center to study with Stephen Maxson. And that, uh, as they say, is history. That I, I went there, and um, I had done the National Youth Orchestra of Canada the year before that. And then I went to Banff, I think it was in 92, and I went there for six summers straight. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to do any other program. I, 
got so much out of the master class sessions uh, with Mr. Maxson. And then when it was time for grad school, um, you know, it was after my second summer, he said, well, you know, there's a spot at Yale. Why don't you send a tape? And back then, uh, Yale wasn't fully endowed uh, the way it is now, so it wasn't as difficult to get in as it is uh, now. Um, so I did Yale for grad school, and then I got into the New World Symphony. Um, at Yale, I should also mention I had, uh, so Mr. Maxson was still teaching at Yale. That was his last uh, East Coast uh, school that he kept. But then after my first year, um, he retired then, because he was living in California. If you can imagine, he was at the time 78 or 79, and he was twice a month flying across the country to come and teach us. And we felt so lucky, but we also understood when he said, you know, I've had it. It's been, it's been fun, but I'm going to stay on the, on the West Coast now. So then mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Morelli took over. So I had one year with uh, Mr. Morelli, and that was, that was awesome. It was such a great um, inspiration and so much, you know, Mr. Maxim didn't really play, and my undergrad teacher didn't play either. He had had hand surgery, and so, you know, I, I studied with teachers who demonstrated a little bit, Mr. Maxim, a little bit in, in the summer in Banff. But, but then I had Mr. Morelli who, you know, he played, and he really played, and it was, it was really, um, it, it was, my last year of study was, in a way, it was like uh, very different than the rest, but uh, because, because I heard him play so much. Uh, and then I went to New World for two years, and then um, I got a job in the Buffalo Philharmonic. So I should say I'm from Montreal originally. So, and after Buffalo, I think it was one or two months into the season, I auditioned for the Montreal Symphony, and I got my first job. In Montreal was associate when John Clauser had left to go um, to the Cleveland Orchestra. And then a month after that, Whitney Crockett, who was a principal here, won the Met job. So I had to audition again in the spring for the principal job. Um, I actually took, I think it was seven auditions for the Montreal Symphony because there was a lot of turnover in the 90s. And whenever there was an audition, you know, I, it was my civic duty to, um, to take, <laughs> take the audition here. So, so, yeah, so after all of this, I've come full circle and it's now been, I can't believe I'm going to say this, it's been 20 years um, in the Montreal Symphony. And I still feel just as lucky as I did when I first got the job, maybe a little bit less terrified than I was when I started, <laughs> but I'm so, so lucky. So so that's it, I think, in a nutshell. Well, whenever we talk to these renowned orchestral players, our listeners really love to hear about their experience winning their position. Would you mind talking to us about um, your process of auditioning for and winning your current position? I would say that when I was in Buffalo um, and then the position, the audition for the position, it was at the end of October. And I remember because uh, Cecilia Bartoli was doing the benefit concert for the orchestra here the day before the audition, and I thought, nah, I think I should stay home and practice. And I think that was the good call. I really wanted to go hear her sing. But um, the audition for, for associate, um, I, I really, I felt this combination. There was, I mean, there was a lot of pressure. This, I think now this was audition number six that I had taken for this orchestra, and I felt like, okay, now, you know, this, this could happen. I'm, I'm at the level. I, I think I know what I'm doing. And but at the same time, it's like I better do this right because even though I've had a lot of auditions in Montreal, you know, what if this is the last one and I don't win it? And you know, in in a parallel universe, I'm still in Buffalo probably. But um, so I prepared. I think this was the most diligent, uh, the most serious preparation 
that I did. And I think, you know, I used a lot of the experience I had had uh, working with um, all my teachers, but also working with the coaches who came to New World, um, putting a bit more into practice some of the visualization techniques, some of the, uh, the sort of um, like Don Green type of, of exercises, um, so that, you know, I knew that the day of, I, I my margin of error was very, very small. And so, you know, to, to get to come home was a great source of motivation for me for the preparation to join you know, this orchestra, which I knew so well from, you know, being a kid, going to concerts with my grandpa and then going to hear them um, uh, so often. I mean, that's that's what I did. I, I went to concerts, you know, and um, so, yeah, and then when, when, so I was associate, and then when Whitney Crockett got the principal job at the Met, I was like, oh, man, I have to do this, do this one more time. Um, it was It was a bit different because the pressure, I mean, the pressure was still there. It's always there. Um, but I, my backup plan, if it hadn't worked out, was still pretty cool. You know, I still had a job in the Montreal Symphony, but I really wanted the principal chair. And so, in in a way, um, uh, the last two auditions that I took for Montreal were probably the most significant ones. Um, and you know, I, I also knew the orchestra. I I knew the style of playing that I could get away with if I wanted to be a little crazy. Uh, I knew, and there was a lot of recorded history of the Montreal Symphony. All the big recordings. I'm not. I'm not on the majority of them because the heyday of recordings in the 80s and early 90s, and it was mostly uh, Richard Honig and Whitney Crockett. But, you know, if there's a recording of Bolero by the orchestra that you're auditioning for, it might be a good idea to listen to that version, you know. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess I just, I felt so lucky to be given the chance to audition in my hometown, and I wasn't about to uh, to mess it up. <laughs> Would you feel comfortable describing some of the visualization techniques that you employed? Sure. I I think for me, um, you know, some people they like to practice in good sounding rooms, and I I think it's great if you've got the luxury of being in a school with really great practice rooms, then I'm happy for you. Um, but I I like to try and be in a room that's going to be a little too dry and a little too small, but then I want to make that room big, so I will literally put myself in one of the corners and then pretty quickly envision either, because I knew where the, uh, the auditions at the time, uh, the Montreal Symphony auditions were never on stage. They were in one of the rehearsal halls. So I knew that place from having done rehearsals with freelance orchestras there. Um, I, I would really, you know, very simply try and picture the great white linen sort of uh, panel that they had um, so that all the auditions in Montreal are blind all the way to the end. There's a screen all the way uh, into the finals. Um, and then, I, you know, especially in the last maybe couple of weeks before the audition, I would always do a random round. So I would put on my excerpts and little hat um, and, you know, pick six. And that was my first round. And I would play them. And, you know, I wouldn't practice. I would play them. And I would force myself to remember, like, okay, so what not, I mean, of course, if I bombed, I would redo it. But, it, you know, if, if you do it and then there's one little corner that's not clean or there's one high note that's a little too high or whatever, then, you know, I would really, I want to try to remember because a lot of times people record themselves and that's great. You know, like, you really should. But while you're playing, you can also kind of record yourself and have all your sensors on. And, and to me, that's very uh, useful because if you're playing, you don't really know what you did and you have to wait to listen to it. I mean, that could be a good 
confirmation, but I think we need to know, you know, exactly what what we do when we're doing it and then retain the information so that we can make it better without having I mean, we are ultimately we're our own teachers. Um, you know, I always tell my students, I wish I could be with them at least an hour every day. That's not feasible. And so when I look, if I average out, let's say, three hours of practice for my students and I see them for one hour, that's about 5% of their bassoon practice time or bassoon, you know, solo time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have to be able to to know pretty quickly, you know, the difference between, you know, I mean, of course, if you mess up completely, you should, usually you know, but, you know, Beethoven 4, it's pretty easy to tell. But um, But if you're not aware that you're always a little too bright on one note or a little... Um, you know, if you don't vibrate the right way on, on a particular note um, and you have to rely on someone telling you or a recording device, I mean, of course, when you're young, that's normal. But when you're getting closer to what we're going to do, you know, what it takes to win a job, then I think we have to, like I said, have our sensors on all the time. Shifting from winning your position to doing your position, do you have any advice for dealing with performance anxiety or realizing the full extent of your potential even in the heat of a high-pressure moment? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's, it's so individual. Not everybody has the same um, reaction to the pressure. You know, know, when, when students always say like, well, I know I swear it was it was good when I was practicing, and of course under pressure, then the bar goes up a little bit. Um, I, I think it really comes down to preparation. Um, you can't you can't cut corners. If if I go in um, and I'm sight reading, I better have my really good sight reading glasses on because no one around me should know that I'm sight reading. Um, and for a concert, if you've done all your prep, then you have to have a, a certain amount of faith in, in the fact that, you know, this is what we do, that all the practicing and all the preparation we do, hopefully the concert is our best version. Um, I think we have to be open to the unknown or, you know, a certain amount of vulnerability. If, if I'm playing a Haydn symphony and I've got one of these great lines in the trio of a minuet and the violins are either not with me or I'm not with them, but I'm not going to blame them. We're not together. i got to figure out how to be together. So I have to be really quick to recognize and adjust, um, I try really hard not to get mad. If I do something that's not exactly the way I want to, I don't hit myself in the head because that one is done, but there's a lot more notes left to play on the right side of the page. Um, and then I, um, you know, I, through New World, I we didn't actually, the two years I was there, we knew of Don Green and we had some, um, some, um, uh, interactions that had to do with performance anxiety and things like that but I don't think he actually came but I know he did a lot of work there but then one of the years where I went to coach down at New World I met uh, Noe Kageyama from the Bulletproof Musician Mm -hmm. and I kind of had a little crush on him because he was he's so amazing and and his tone and his manner and he was so he cared so much so I I'm you know I subscribe to his uh, weekly newsletter and I think I think it's great because um, there's always something in it that I either will click with for myself or that I know I can tell my students to, you know, check that out. Um, and But yeah, I, I think ultimately um, the amount of preparation for me is directly related to whether I'm going to have um, you know, more or less 
nerves in a performance. And, and I mean, we should also kind of be nervous. If you have to start the right of spring, it doesn't matter if you're a principal in Montreal Symphony or if you're playing in a youth orchestra. You know, it's, it's crazy. Like, why do we do this? Because we, <laughs> because we love it, because it's the greatest job. So you're obviously very busy playing in a full-time orchestra and um, teaching, and I would love to know what your favorite things to do for self-care are. I'm, I was kind of late to the game, but I realized at some point, maybe 10 years ago, that, uh, you know, I, physically, I wasn't going to stay in shape just by sheer force of will. I kind of had to go and, you know, get out. <laughs> so exercise has become uh, more important for me. Uh, it's a great way. If I start the day, if I get a workout in before I go to work, I have a much better day. I feel more... Um, feel more focused um so I, I did you know i did a bit of running i ran a few half marathons and then um i don't really do that anymore i do more you know um, little workouts at home um but you know go outside people go for a walk go for a hike <laughs> really we, we you know we sit down to do our what we do or you know we might stand up practicing or performing a, a recital but most of the time we're sitting um and yeah i like to go for walks i like Hiking. I did a lot of hiking when I was uh, studying and uh, then teaching in Banff. I spent 13 summers of my life in Banff. 13, you know, chunks over the the years. So you know, now it's more than that. Less than that, but I used to say that a third of my summers were spent in Banff, and that was pretty cool. Um, and um, I don't read as much as I should. Sometimes I read, you know, I'll, I'll go through the Double Read magazine and I'll feel really good that I read whatever, you know, 7,500 pages. <laughs> um, yeah, things like that. But I, I think, you know, moving, being active. I'm so lucky. I live 20 minutes by foot uh, to the concert hall. So, you know, for definitely the days of rehearsals and then up to minus, you know, minus 20 Celsius when it's really cold, I'll still walk because it's, to get ready to get the blood going in the morning. So, Could you talk to us about a favorite memory of a past performance you've had on stage? I, I think a lot of times it it's... I'll talk about probably most of the orchestral stuff. It's, it's the first time I get to do a piece. So I remember, you know, vividly in grad school doing my first Rite of Spring. You know, it's like... All of a sudden, and by first I mean the first rehearsal, because I mean you know it's it, it's such a big deal. Um, I I love um, all the music of Richard Strauss. So whenever we've done you know Alpine Symphony, we do um, Heldenleben. But one of the pieces I've never played that I can't wait to do, hopefully one day, is uh, Rosen Cavalier, the whole opera. Mm. Um, Whenever I get to play the Grand Partita, and I did earlier this year, for me it's it's you know I don't know it's it's as important a work for me as as a Beethoven symphony. Playing Beethoven symphonies is pretty cool, you know. Um, so I, I just I love performing. So I, I can't narrow it down to just one. Um, I I if I had to in recent years, I would say you know as crazy as it was. Um, we took the Rite of Spring on, on the U.S. tour in 2016. So playing the Rite of Spring at Carnegie Hall is pretty cool. You know? <laughs> that, was, that was fun. That was a good one. Somewhat related to that question, and this is sort of an unfair question because it's so big, but um, 
what are some of your favorite pieces to play? Solo, chamber, orchestral? I, I, I'm afraid that I'm a little boring and predictable, but, you know, <laughs> I, the pulling trio. I'm playing it again this, this summer with, uh, with our principal oboe here, uh, Ted Baskin. I've done it a million times, and probably half of that million times I've done it with him, and it's always, uh, it's always different and always flexible, and we like to sort of, you know, challenge each other. Um, I, one of the pieces that I think that I love because it's challenging, like, so I've never done the Jolie Beck Concerto, um, and I, I'm always impressed when students, I mean, I've worked on it with students, and I can fake through a lot of it, but um, but I like the Concertino by Marcel Beach, which I like to call a mini Jolivet because it's much shorter, and it's only mm-hmm. two pages of terror, not no, <laughs> 11 or whatever. Um, I, I enjoy playing also, um, you know, any wind octet music, you know, the, the great ones, like the two Mozart serenades, um, um, but also some of the more, um, let's say, you know, the B composers like Cromer, or, um, and, and just it, there's so much fun, it, like to play band music and then it, to imagine that these people were kind of like rock stars back in, you know, uh, Mozart's and Beethoven's time. So I, I think, and it's really great because it's a combination of sort of the orchestral core section, but also it's very virtuosic um, chamber playing. So, I don't know, and I, like I said earlier, I think one of my favorite pieces that I haven't played yet, and I, I hope will do, I keep bugging our music director, and um, but it would be to play like a concert version of Rosen Cavalier. That would be awesome. Mm. Yeah. I would love to hear about your approach to practicing. If you have any warm-up system that you use on a consistent basis, and also just kind of more generally, given your busy schedule, how you go about approaching your practice time, what you prioritize, that type of thing. I have to be in shape. My face has to be in shape, and that's the first thing that goes. You know, if you take a couple of days off, you better have a really good warm-up the morning of the next rehearsal. Um, um, I try to, if I take time off, like I went to Chicago on, on a trip over the weekend and I don't have to play until next Monday or Tuesday, I'm not going to wait till Sunday night to get my chops back on. The fingers usually come back a little faster, but, you know, the muscles in the face. I remember once I was, uh, I'd taken time off and went back in our summer season and we were doing Schumann 2 or 3. Uh, and then you know, I turned over to our principal client and I said, is it just me or is this really hard? You know, and that one I hadn't, you know, maybe I should, I would have needed a couple more days to get back uh, my, my facial muscles because there are no rests in Schumann symphonies. If you don't know, <laughs> there are no rests. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, uh, you know, I, I met uh, when I did the National Youth Orchestra of Canada, it was usually Chris Millard who was the coach. Um, but the year that I did it, he had taken the summer off, so um, I got to work with uh, Christopher Wiet, uh, who was such an amazing resource, knowledge, uh, you know, like he's like a walking encyclopedia as, as far as bassoon and wind music goes. And he has these warm-up exercises that I feel are great because they're really about getting your, uh, you know, your range, your intervals, making sure your read is doing what it needs to do, and, you know, when you've got... Um, increasingly large intervals to go down. 
Um, if the stars don't go down, you can blame yourself for a few minutes, and after that you have to blame the read. So it tells you, okay, go work on that read a little bit too. Um, I Then so after I can say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm warmed up, I'm in shape, then it's, you know, some weeks I have a pile of music. Like a couple of weeks ago, we had this uh, Nordic festival throughout the concert uh, series at the hall and at, at, in Montreal we have a, our concert hall the Maison Symphonique but we also have Place des Arts which is a complex a bit like Lincoln Center if you want um, and so we had you know three different programs I, I only had to do two because uh, I'm lucky to have an associate principal so but you know a lot of music that you don't know like the Sibelius Lemminkainen um, excerpts the suite uh, Nielsen three things like that so that and that was a couple of weeks of learning a lot of notes I've never known before. Um, so, you know, so what? I, I say it. Get your chops going. Get warmed up. Then learn the notes you need to know for the next, um, you know. And, and in the case of students, it will be, for, for instance, like, of course, we always practice our etudes and our solo rep. But get your notes ready for your chamber groups because it's, it's not when you go into a rehearsal or a coaching that you should be learning your notes. Um, so I... I want to make sure that the unknown is uh, reduced to a minimum. Um, and then uh, I'll also sometimes I'll pull out a couple of etude books like the PR uh, arpeggio studies um, to get, you know, to challenge myself. Sometimes I revisit the, the Mildy scales uh, and arpeggios uh, and the new edition that um, Mr. Cammons and uh, Billy Short did is really cool. So... I think you know it's making sure that you're on top of on top of your reads too. I you know sometimes people say this thing they have a bad read and they go oh, I'll just use it to practice. Well, if the read is bad, chances are your technique will suffer because intervals aren't going to work because it won't be as smooth or whatever. So I also need to be on top of the reads. And, um, and you know now that it's been 20 years and longer if you count New World and Buffalo and my student years, you know. A week, like a couple of weeks ago, with a lot of new rep, doesn't happen too often anymore. You know, we have a Beethoven festival coming up, and it's Beethoven symphonies. That's not so bad, you know. Like I know, I know those songs. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, and and um, I, 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 I guess I'm I'm lucky. I don't need to do four hours a day anymore, you know, um, because I have the experience and um, I, I know I know what it takes. But I can't take it for granted either. I gotta. I have to make sure my my uh, preparation is there because I don't want colleagues around me to suffer because of me, you know, <laughs> either because my, I've got a bad read or because I'm not prepared or because I'm out of tune or whatever. I, you know, that's my responsibility. I, I I owe it to myself and to my colleagues. Plus, they're all I'm very lucky. Like the the, the woodwind section, the Montreal Symphony, the bassoon section, it's all really really nice, really great people. So. I don't want to be the jerk that comes in unprepared and, and then, you know, messes that up. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to kill the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any tips for teaching or learning um, physical concepts like embouchure and vibrato? So, I, like I said earlier, um, if for um, my, my undergrad, so from, you know, I had... In high school, I had this middle school. I had this teacher who was a student at the conservatory, so he set me up. But he was studying with who would end up being my undergrad teacher, who and he didn't play anymore. But he had a lot of really good 
um, things about, you know, like you say, for, for Embouchure, for instance, he just, he told us, it was very simple. I said, imagine you've got like a, like a tall, one of those tall uh, soda, like a Coke bottle or something. Um, and imagine that you're blowing into that hole. So that kind of purses your lips a little bit. It makes you a little more of your, the corners of your embouchure. And then you say, basically, that's your lip position. And then you put the reed in and you try to uh, push the air forward instead of down. But, you know, that way you don't have too much of an overbite. Sometimes I see students and I feel really bad that someone told them that you need to, like, shove your lower jaw back or something, and then there's no contact between the two um, uh, upper and lower lips. So it, it's really silly to say blow into a Coke bottle and then do the same thing with the bassoon reed. And, uh, but, you know, it really works. Um, and it makes you aware of not just, you know, the up and down pressure. You know, we're not supposed to bite, but we, we have to know how to hold on to the reed uh, with, with a, a much more, like, cross type of of muscles and, and um, so we're not clamping up and down. Um, so yeah, blow into a Coke bottle and get back to me. Um, and then, <laughs> um, and for vibrato, I I feel lucky. Um, you know, I, I listen to, a, a, I mean, also, you have to be, as you're learning stuff, you have to be such a nerd. If you're not a bassoon nerd and you're trying to be a bassoonist, Something's wrong. So I listened to a lot of recordings and, you know, like recordings of people like Klaus Thunemann, um, anything with the Philly Orchestra when I was a student, anything with the Montreal Symphony. And then so I, I got to hear these vibratos and these singing qualities, and then it kind of happened on its own for me. Vibrato, my teacher didn't tell me do metronomic subdivisions, but that's the thing to do if you have, you know, if you're starting vibrato and it's not natural. But then what was really, really great, um, I was, uh, for a while I taught at the University of Montreal uh, early when I uh, started my job, and um, and so Mr. Morelli came to give uh, a class, and I didn't tell him, you know, you should really work on vibrato with this one student. I knew he would figure it out because it was pretty obvious, and so then he did his whole vibrato sort of uh, teaching um, which you can find if you go to his uh, to Frank Morelli's website and you go, I think it's called Virtual Teaching or Master Class Materials, whatever. There's something about, about vibrato, but he kind of came up with this system which had to do with subdivisions. I know, so you play, put your metronome on at 60 and then you do eighths and then triplets and then four sixteenths. But then the magic thing was when he started to talk about quintuplets. Mm-hmm. And you do quintuplets at 60 and after a while, it, it's to train yourself and your ear to not play metronomic vibrato. You know, like someone might have a really nice vibrato, but then it's going to sound like 16th notes. And you don't really want to have a, a sort of la 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 type of vibrato if you can kind of shift in and out of sync. So having this idea of quintuplets, because unless you're, you know, really big into new music, quintuplets aren't that natural for us. So... Um, that now that's the way. I mean, I owe it all to Mr. Morelli. That's how, if someone struggles with vibrato, I teach it based on that. So go on his website, and it, it all he figured out that you know, vibrato at about 300 beats per minute seemed to be a very good kind of cruise control, nice sort of bassoony vibrato. And of course, then if people wanted to be a little fa- slower or faster, you can also do that. You can put your metronome at 
56, but the goal is still to have you know, this idea of quintuplets so that you never notice that your vibrato is metronomic. So that, those are the two things for, you know, specifically embouchure and, uh, and vibrato. That's fantastic. Another thing we're continually trying to improve is uh, read making, and our listeners love getting read making advice. So we'd love to hear any you have, and perhaps just your approach to read making in general. So my uh, undergrad teacher, we had a, a profiler at school, and it was horrible. I don't even know if it had a name. It wasn't a fifer; it was a knockoff, and it was just bad. So you know, he suggested get some bloating, uh, shape profile, gouge shape profile came, and so that's what I learned on. But, you know, and he told me a few things. Put the first wire at 28 millimeters, and then from there, clip at 28 from the wire, so the reed's 56 mil. Okay, great, I'll do that. And then uh, my first year, we had a chamber um, sort of weekend with a group from Miami University of Oxford, Ohio. And um, for some reason, we were low on bassoons. I was playing in three quintets, and by the third quintet, we were doing summer music, and I couldn't play those, you know, G sharps and low C sharp and uh, all those low quiet notes um, in, after the opening during the oboe solo. And so John Hurd, who was the bassoon prof at Miami of Ohio, came and he just he just gave me a read. And my goodness, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, I could play quietly. I could play so much louder. I wasn't sharp. Um, so I, I spoke with him a lot afterwards, and. Um, and then I even went in the summer. I took a like a whatever you call it, like a independent project type of thing. And I went for three weeks to Miami of Ohio in the summer of 1990. And all I did was make reads and play duets with John Hurd. And um, so my read style really, I, I it goes all the way back to him. Short tube, you know. I put my first wire at 26 or 27 from the butt, and then I clip. 30 from the wire, so that's about a 56 millimeter, 56, 57. I tell 57 to my students because we've had 442 in the orchestra in Montreal, but, you know, they should never be sharper than me, and, you know, sadly, sometimes they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that rule. Yeah, you can't play sharper than your teacher. Um, and then, so, um, I, I use a dial indicator not because of, uh, you know, if, if I have the right measurements on the read and the read doesn't work, then I have to make it work. Um, so it, I think it's guidelines the same way, you know, you work, you know, if the recipe calls for one tablespoon of something and you put one teaspoon, then you wonder why it's not, you know, spicy enough or whatever. So it, to me, I, it's for basic guidelines. Um, the dial indicator is a really useful tool. Um, I also, uh, like I said earlier, you know, I, uh, of course, not all your your reads are going to be great, but the truly bad ones, don't waste time on them. Make another one. Clip the next blank because um, fighting a, a bad read, either for practicing or for performing, is, there's no worse feeling. Um, um, there was a clarinet uh, colleague in Montreal who said, you know, like, it doesn't really matter what read style you preach or you teach or you do. We need, you know, instant tone when needed, and we need a good taper. And, you know, preferably good intonation, too. But that's, you know, you can always adjust. Um, but, yeah, I think making a lot of reads. The, the best read tools we can have, um, we, should, we should get. You know, like, don't, don't, don't buy a cheap knife. Don't use a dull knife. Um, but also, I think, 
two of the tools that I like to tell my students that they need is patience and consistency. You know, if you come in and the wires aren't in the right place or the shape is all ragged or you're trying a different shape but you're not making adjustments, you know, uh, then, and then, you know, I don't know why it's not working. Well, look, it's way too wide at the tip or it's way too narrow in the second wire or whatever. So we have to be consistent um, and we have to be nerds, you know, like go back. I mean, of course, now with the smartphones, it's all there, but there's almost too much and people don't know where to look. So maybe go, go look at some of the old readmaking books like the Glickman Popping um, book is a really great resource um, just to know to try something different. So um, if you want to try something different, also do what your teachers say, because usually there's a reason why. They came up, you know, with this particular read style, and usually um, it it will work. And then we can talk. Oh, if your lips are smaller, or if you uh, you know need a slightly more narrow or wide shape, okay, we can talk about it. But um, try and do what your teachers say. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so I love to ask this question. Um, but do you have any particularly funny or embarrassing moments that have happened to you on stage? So the the most, I think, embarrassing but with a happy conclusion story was um, in the summer we play at a sort of Tanglewood, you know, amphitheater, outdoors place. Uh, it's about 50 miles from Montreal. So I got in the car, drove out there, and showed up. And I, I, I only carry my bassoon case, and I have like an Altieri um, case cover, so I don't carry an extra bag for reads or music, whatever. But lo and behold, for the one and only time in my life, I didn't have my reads. No. <laughs> I'm 50 miles away. I can't turn around. But then I knew that... Uh, the associates were going to be around for the rehearsal also, and Mathieu and I, we make similar reads. So all of a sudden, everything was going to be fine, because I, I told them, I said, give me your number three or number four read. I don't want your best read, you know, just give me something that plays. And I said, can I you know, tweak it a little bit? And um, it was, you know, everything in the end was fine, but it could have been a catastrophe if, you know, if I didn't, if if. It was just me and uh, our second player. But knowing that Matu was there and that you know, we can trade reads if necessary, that made it all better. But uh, I can't really say that I've got you know, any sort of, you know, may, I mean, yeah, I've screwed up on stage every now and then, but it's, you know, it's, <laughs> that, that's, I try to do it in the way where I know it and not too many people know it, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to do it. <laughs> uh-huh. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? You have to, I mean, I've said this twice, so I'm sorry for repeating myself, but you have to be a geek, you have to be a nerd, you have to know the rep, you have to listen to so many recordings, and, and you know, now with YouTube and, and things like that, we have a lot of uh, a lot of access, but there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that we shouldn't be posting or listening to. So instead, you know, take the time, go to the music library, or, or if, if your school has a Maxos or a Spotify type of thing, and listen to good recordings, please. Um, and, and familiarize yourself with the rep. Go to live concerts. You know, um, I, I I don't feel like I should be telling students, you know, oh, this week we're doing, you know, 
Rhapsody Espanol makes sure to come. But sometimes I have to because I know that they're so busy. But, you know, I went to so many concerts when I was a student. Um, you know, and um, uh, what else? I mean, you've yeah, the obvious one is you, if you want to be a professional musician, um, you have to spend a lot of time alone practicing and not mindless practices. Always make sure that there's always something better at the end of your practice session. And sometimes it will just be that, you know, your Figaro is now at 132 instead of, uh, you know, instead of 126. And that's enough. Don't aim for 152 or 144 right away. If you're, you know, if it was good at 120 yesterday, then just push yourself a little bit um, and go to other people's master classes. If there's, you know, you're a bassoonist and there's a noble player in town and there's a class, please go. Or, you know, cellist or pianist, anyone. Um, there's so many outstanding musicians out there. Um, I, I think we're lucky to do what we do. Um, you know, I think one of the things also about your particular podcast is, is the generosity and, and the uh, open-mindedness that it brings and that we should all be open-minded and we should all be receptive all the time. Some like that. I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation, and I'm so grateful that you agreed to be on. I'm very, very uh, honored and delighted to have spent uh, this time with you guys, and thank you. You have a really, really fabulous uh, thing going on, and uh, I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts, and they're on my iPod, on my iPhone, and you know, I'd much rather listen to that on the plane than watch, you know, a rerun of uh, a show. <laughs> We're honored. We're honored. Yeah, we take that as a compliment. (laughs) So we hope you loved that interview with Stefan Levesque. Do not forget that you can listen to all of our episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. Galit, where can they find us online? We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Kathleen, who's going to be our next guest? Dwight Perry, who is the principal oboe of the Cincinnati Symphony. Yay! Be sure to tune in.